This is episode six of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I'm speaking with chiropractor and entrepreneur, Dr. Sean Thistle, about the chiropractic profession, common myths, and tips on staying up to date with current research. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Can you introduce yourself and your background? Sure. My name is Dr. Sean Thistle. I'm a practicing chiropractor and entrepreneur and have sort of evolved my career over time to go from full-time clinical practice when I graduated into a knowledge transfer and continuing education business now called RRS Education. And I'm currently working on that full-time, seeing patients a little bit for home care and do a mix of other things. I, I lecture on, uh, in the orthopedics department at uh, the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. And I do some medical legal consulting for chiropractic malpractice cases, which is, has been an interesting sort of addition to the things that I work on. And I'm a member of the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative, which is a group with the goal of helping to disseminate clinical practice guideline findings to practicing clinicians in the field. So I do a nice little mix of things now. Can you tell us a little bit about the RRS company and how that started for you? Mm-hmm. So RRS education sort of evolved over the years when the true origin story of it kind of lies when I was a, in second year at chiropractic college, this would be in 2002 or around that, that time. And while I was in the program there, I, I, it's not that I was bored, but I was more interested in sort of what, what's being published in the, in the journals that were up in the library. And we had to go back in those days and read physical, you know, copies of these things. That's how old I am. But I started noticing that there was a bit of a disconnect between some parts of the curriculum and what was being currently published in the literature. So, you know, I would find an interesting paper or randomized trial or systematic review or something and then take it to my classmates and say, hey, have you seen this? They would say no. I would take it to some of the faculty members and they had also not seen it. And so what I started doing was writing short summaries of those papers. And it was a little bit of critique. It was a little bit of context. They were pretty short back then. And it just so happened I was the email distribution guy in our class too. I had our whole class on an email list. So we would send out notes and you know social events and that sort of thing. So I had that list. And I started sending out these little summaries of, of research papers that I would see and I would write. And there were 160 people in our class, so I had everybody. By the end of third year and when I was in clinic, I had over 500 people on my email list. So I would have colleagues in third year, fourth year at the time, and even faculty members uh, approach me in the hallway and say, are you the guy that sends out the summaries of research and can I be on your list? So I started sort of uh, doing it in that sense. And then when I started practicing at Shape in Yorkville when I graduated, you know, I didn't, I'm not from Toronto. I grew up in Stratford, Ontario, so I didn't have an existing sort of client base to go to. So as you guys know, when you start practice, uh, you're slow. <laughs> Sometimes you got to build it, right? And so I was sitting in my office with my colleague there and he was on my list. He was a couple of years ahead of me in, in school. And I had sent out the email for that day and I started doing them a little more frequently because you have time when you're in practice and have no patience. So I'd send them out maybe once a week and, and he said, you know, you should really turn this into a business and do it formally. And I had sort of had that in my mind uh, anyway. And as it happens, my mother, uh, so, you know, the other interesting part of the origin story is that 
Uh, RRS Education is a family business. My mother, uh, Jay, is our web designer and handles all of our technical support emails. So she's intimately involved with sort of our, our, our client management end of things. And so we got the website set up and we put it behind a subscription portal and then everyone vanished. So it was like I went from talking to 500 people to very few because I think I, I, I initially charged 79 bucks a year. And there were a few people come on and I actually remember getting my 10th subscriber and then I remember getting my 100th subscriber and then I remember getting my 1,000th and you think, oh, well, this is something that I could do. So we started publishing them every week and kind of formalized the the format of them and in terms of going through the background information on the on the topic at hand for the day, uh, outlining the study methods and and sort of critiquing it in that sense and then outlining the results and then how you put it into practice. So the whole point of the company then and as it stands now is to fill that void between huge body of published literature coming out and people in the field who have no time to read it or evaluate it or integrate it or even think about it for the most part. So just to make that easier. Over time, we've added two more branches. Um, we, we started creating online courses from the reviews themselves, I think in 2013. So a combination of four to six uh, research reviews that are topically related. We combine them with uh, multiple choice questions and people can use those for, for formal credit in most jurisdictions. And we're just starting to expand that into the US a little bit as well. So we currently have 96 single hour courses and 11 eight-hour bundles if people need a bunch of credits, so we discount those a little bit. It's repurposing of content in a way, but people need credit, so it's kind of an interesting way to do that. And then I started doing live seminars, which is in a way my favorite and least favorite branch of the business because I love speaking. I love speaking in front of a crowd. I think I'm good at it. And I, I like bringing them a global sort of look at what the literature says on a given topic and making them realize that integrating it's not that difficult. But getting people to give up weekends to come to things is becoming more and more challenging. And I think eventually it'll be interesting to see if I still do those because I think everything's going online. And what we're currently working on is a, a modified and updated learning management system online. And we're going to add webinar style courses as well. So uh, that's sort of the next thing that I'm working on over the summertime. And so we have sort of three concurrent branches. I'm a lone soldier in the, in the company. I do it all myself. I have writers that do the reviews for me, but I act as the editor. I handle the marketing, but eventually that's going to change and it perhaps should have already. So the next phase is getting some help in terms of staff and sort of expanding our reach. It's been quite successful in Canada. You know, our, our National Chiropractic Association subscribes to our research reviews for the 8,000 plus chiropractors in Canada. We have a similar arrangement in Britain. And so getting bigger groups on board like that's been certainly helpful and one of the reasons I can do it full time now. So that's, that's kind of the whole background story on the company. Okay. And so today we're talking about myths in musculoskeletal medicine. And so as a healthcare provider, I get a lot of questions about chiropractic treatment and a lot of people think that it's just spinal adjustments but I know it's more than that. Mm -hmm. So can you briefly describe what chiropractic medicine is and what it isn't? Okay, so there are a lot of misconceptions about it in a way, and that comes from a, for a number of reasons, and we'll probably touch on those. But chiropractic has sort of evolved from, you know, our origins in the late 1800s. You know, Daniel David Palmer realized that adjusting or manipulating a spine can have 
some positive health benefits and help people with pain syndromes and maybe some other things. And, and, he, and he kind of formalized that into a profession. And back then it was kind of built on more of a philosophy and an idea, sort of, you know, bone out of place, irritating a nerve. And if we adjust it or manipulate it, it takes pressure off that nerve or puts the bone back into place. And the person is free to be healthy and do all the things they need to do. That allowed us to kind of survive as a profession and be distinct enough to, to exist uh, through the early part of the 1900s. But, you know, modern day chiropractic has kind of evolved past that to be sort of a little more comprehensive in terms of how we deal with spine pain syndromes and, and sort of the treatment approaches that we use. So spinal manipulation is a big part of what most chiropractors do. For some of my colleagues, it's really their only clinical intervention. But by and large, a lot of my colleagues now do sort of multidisciplinary or sorry, multimodal care. So hands-on manual therapy, manipulation, mobilization. Uh, a lot of people do soft tissue therapy, acupuncture, exercise and rehab and very similar modalities that a physiotherapist would use, for example. So it's sort of evolved into a profession where you can make your own path in a sense of choosing the things that you want to implement in your practice. And I think one of the things we're best known for is still spinal manipulation, but it, it sort of evolved beyond that and, and moved on with still a focus on spine pain syndromes, of course. And you just kind of said that many chiropractors are treating similarly to physiotherapists. So mm -hmm. what is the difference between the two? That's a really good question these days. And I don't think it's fair to have a global answer to that because, you know, I have five good friends of mine that are physiotherapists. Three of them have gone through the FCAMP certification in Canada and utilize a lot of, the, of similar treatment techniques to what I would use, uh, for example. So I think that really boils down to an individual practitioner difference, uh, you know, comparing this chiropractor to that physiotherapist. But so I think a sweeping statement isn't, isn't possible now. I mean, the difference is in, if you back up to the education process, if, if you're a physiotherapist that wants to focus on orthopedic outpatient musculoskeletal stuff, for lack of a better term, you're a little bit behind in the education. I mean that respectfully because we spend four years doing just that stuff, you know, with a focus on the spine, but we do shoulders and extremities and everything else and, and sports injury management and that sort of thing. In a physiotherapy program, you guys learn about other things that if you focus on outpatient MSK are kind of irrelevant to that practice. So outpatient MSK is a portion of your education, but you also do cardio resp or, or neuro and, and a bunch of other things. So it's a, I think it's unfair to compare a new grad chiropractor and a new grad physio. And I think most physiotherapists would acknowledge that as well, and my friends would too. But there's way, there are ways to catch up. So I think over time and over people's careers, you can evolve and learn other things and, and get to the same point. So for an average patient, it, I think it boils down to a healthcare choice or a personal referral. And I think that's how most people build successful practices anyway. So for example, if I'm looking for a practitioner to see one of my patients out of town, I ask for a good clinician. I don't really care these days what the letters are after your name, and I, th I think we're in a world now where that's okay. Uh, and I know it bothers some people in your profession, it bothers some people in my profession, but we all need to get over that, I think. So the, the differences are, are hard to explain and certainly individual factors. And so let's go back to the myths. Mm -hmm. um, what are the biggest myths that you have to dispel as a chiropractor? 
I think this is an interesting question, and I, I do a, I do a seminar on this, and we talk about various things from a, from a literature perspective. But the more I was in practice, and, and the more I'd look at the literature as a whole and how it pertains to what we do with people, I think a lot of the things that we have to spend time dispelling in our practice are myths that patients come in with. And you know, in the information age, there's lots of good information out there. There's lots of terrible information. So the average layperson as a patient is not necessarily equipped to figure out which is which. So what I find, and, and I suppose this might not be as much of a myth as a personal clinical pet peeve, and you, you've probably seen this in your practices too, that patients come in with kind of anatomically irrelevant differences. So that, that one of our colleagues told them about and, and made clinically relevant for them. So I, I consider it anatomical body shaming. If someone comes in and says, well, one of your colleagues told me that I have a short leg, therefore I'm going to have low back pain for the rest of my life. Well, we don't really know that. And, and, you know, when it boils down to the literature and what it says on most of these asymmetries in human beings, they're considered virtually normal now, unless they're severe, they probably don't correlate to clinical symptomatology anyway. And so telling someone about it is kind of labeling them with it. And for the wrong patient, that can turn into a whole sort of cascade of of worrying and catastrophizing and saying, well, I shouldn't play sports because of my short leg. I don't want to injure my hip and that sort of thing. So I think a lot of the myths out there come from us. You know, there are two sides to that argument because some patients require an explanation or they want a reason why their, their knee is bothering them on the side or their hip or whatever it is. So if you find one of these asymmetries and postulate that it's contributing, that individual patient may take that and be okay with it and nothing else untoward happens because of that. For another patient, you tell them your, your leg is short on one side and it turns into this thing for them that they sort of use as either an excuse or a limiting factor for you know, maintaining or, or starting an activity or being athletic or working out period or they just worry about it. So the trouble with clinical practice is you don't always know which patient is which. So. I think as a profession, we and, and physios and anyone else who does what we do, we have to sort of stop it with the body shaming. I, I just don't think it's clinically relevant. And if we, if we broad brush the, the impact of it, I think it's more negative than positive. So, um, you know, other things that as a chiropractor, you hear all kinds of things about my profession. And, you know, it ranges from I believe in chiropractic to I don't believe in chiropractic. So I always say to people, it's not a religion. Uh, maybe at one point it, it kind of was, you know, late 1800s, the, the founder was a bit of a, a faith healer. He was into all kinds of things. And that, that was a good start for us. But we don't, we don't rely on religion or philosophy to get us by these days. So I think it's a powerful clinical predictor of success if they come in and say, I believe in chiropractic or I don't. You're either going to be successful or not based on that one statement alone. So there, there's that part of it. And again, it kind of boils back to what other practitioners tell them. If you don't get adjusted repeatedly, bad things are going to happen to you. And there's really no evidence to support that uh, in any way, shape or form. And, and chiropractors and physiotherapists can have great careers being episodic management strategists for you know recurrent spinal pain syndromes and sports injuries and that sort of thing and there's lots of work for all of us if we stick to that that kind of model so you know there, there's this idea that if i see a chiropractor once i have to go back forever well 
some chiropractors will tell people that or, or they believe that that's in the best interest of the patient. Uh, from a research perspective, that sort of uh, model of care hasn't really been studied virtually at all. So I don't think we have an answer one way or the other. And personally, I've always handled maintenance care if we want to think of it that way. And physiotherapists do it too. If you see people periodically for the thing that they have, a, an arthritic hip or, or, a, or a shoulder that doesn't move well or whatever, that's considered maintenance care in a way. And for some patients, it works perfectly fine. And so I'm all right with the concept. I just, I don't like it when it, when it comes from a place of scare tactics uh, or, and business management. But if it's in the best interest of the patient, uh, I think that's okay. And the other thing that's often lost in that discussion is, from a maintenance care perspective, it's a free world. If a patient wants to see you as a physiotherapist or me as a chiropractor, and they think it helps them and there's some clinical evidence that it does, go for it. I don't really have a problem with it, but using it as a way to drive uh, or scare people into lifetime care plans, I have a bit of a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, there's a few more myths that we hear that I'd like to go through. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one being that chiropractors are back specialists only. Yeah, well, I sit on the fence on this one because if that's what we were truly, and that's what we embraced as a profession, the Global Burden of Disease Project has identified spinal pain as the, as the leading cause of days with disability worldwide. So if there were a profession like chiropractors, for example, who wanted to own that territory and say, we are the spinal care experts uh, for spinal pain syndromes, I think we'd all be so busy we'd have to open more schools. So I think in that regard, we're capable of doing that. But in, for most chiropractors, myself included, we don't just see spines. And in fact, some chiropractors focus more on extremities or they see children or they see pregnant women. And, and there are lots of different areas of practice that people can go into. But the average chiropractic practice, I think, is probably, you know, the, the data that we have, it's not the newest data in a way. And there's new data coming and bigger data to tell us why people come to see us. The vast majority is for neck pain and back pain. And I think from a professional identity perspective, we'd be smart if we just took that and ran with it especially based on the new evidence about the burden of those conditions on society. So yes, people come to see us for other reasons sometimes, but the biggest piece of our pie is, and I think always will be spinal pain. And the litmus test for that is if you go up to 10 people on the street and say, what are chiropractors good at? Most of them are going to say neck pain and back pain. And so those in my profession that have a problem with that, I think aren't looking at the big picture and maybe, you know, need to need to reevaluate how we think about it. And there's nothing wrong with treating spinal pain. There's lots of it. It's very common. Uh, we know now that most cases of neck pain and low back pain will recur to some degree. You just have to find the best way to manage it for people. So there's lots of spine pain work out there. And there's enough for physios and chiros and everyone involved in manual therapy who does it in an evidence-based way to be uh, successful and good at it. So, mm -hmm. I think another myth is that for everyone with spinal pain, neck pain, back pain, that you adjust them? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is where it comes down to individual practitioner, the, the toolbox they have, let's say. And some of my colleagues, the spinal manipulation is their toolbox. And the good news is that, you know, based on the data and the evidence we have, you're going to help most people with neck pain and low back pain if all you do is spinal manipulation or mobilization. If you followed the evidence to it a, a little bit closer, you'd add some exercise to that for most patients or some supportive movement of some sort. 
And I don't think we know what the best mode of doing that is just yet. The challenge is that, you know, that 20%, that 30%, whatever it is, that don't respond well to spinal manipulation. And the big challenge for the manual medicine world these days is to figure out, first of all, maybe what the other good treatments are that we can use, but more importantly, how do we figure out which patient is most appropriate for which treatment? And there have been attempts in the low back pain literature to come up with clinical prediction rules that identify people that might respond better to spinal manipulation, and they're helpful. I use the the child's Fritz uh, Delito kind of model, and I used it in my practice, and I think it works pretty well, but none of it's perfect. And I, I don't think we have an appropriate or a, a validated or a reliable algorithm yet to say, you know, someone presents to you with a mechanical type of neck pain with no indication of a disc lesion or something else, you know, more sinister happening. How do we know that this person's either going to respond or not? To spinal manipulation and how do we decide who's a good candidate so that's actually now been identified as the leading priority in back pain research is to find out from a classification perspective who is most appropriate for what treatment so you know other alternatives for back pain can include positional therapy like a mckenzie style approach to things and uh, or stabilization exercise or self-directed mobility exercise there are other ways to address it and i, I think that's the literature doesn't have an answer for us yet. So if you're going to pick uh, uh, an intervention to try on most back pain patients that aren't an overt neurological condition or an overt disc problem, manipulation and mobilization is a great choice. You're gonna, your batting average is going to be pretty good. But, you know, the, the goal should be let's help everyone and, and see how that goes. So we, we still have more work to do in that area for sure. And with spinal adjustments, you get the people coming in who are scared of it, mm -hmm. who think it's going to hurt them. They've mm -hmm. heard horror stories about it. Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? Well, I always say to my colleagues at seminars when we're talking about you know, neck manipulation as an example or low back manipulation, for us and, and for, for other manual therapy disciplines, it's perfectly normal to put your hands on someone and move them. We, we were, we're trained that way, we've had it done to us. It, the, the threat level's very low uh, for those interventions. If you're a lay person, and I mean this respectfully, and you have no experience with manual therapy at all, and there are a lot of people in that boat, and you, someone says, oh, you should go and see a chiropractor and they'll adjust your neck, and then you go on the internet and look for videos of neck manipulation. It kind of looks terrifying in a way to a person with no you know, background on what's happening or, or, or what it is. So. I think there's that to deal with. And if a patient comes in with any hesitation about it, I think it's good practice in a way. And, and I perhaps did this a lot in my practice anyway. If I have a, a, a patient who's naive to chiropractic treatment, I don't adjust their neck on a first visit anyway. And that's my choice. And there's practice-based data out of Europe showing that patients are more satisfied when, that's, when it's done that way. And I think that allows a practitioner uh, or myself in, the, in most cases to become a little more comfortable with the person that you're dealing with. If this is a new patient that you've never met, neck manipulation is a bit of an odd way to meet somebody, right? So, so give yourself a visit to get to know the person. Do some hands-on treatment on their neck and upper back and T-spine and get a feel for, for what their structure is like. And that, to me at least, always gave me a better idea of how much force do I need, what's the best 
If I've moved their neck around and mobilized it and, and done soft tissue work, I have a good idea of their degree of stiffness, maybe which direction might be the best way to approach it or which way to go. So I think there's a lot of learning that can happen in a first visit without necessarily going to the, the manipulation itself. So that really boils down to a, a patient preference in a way and my sort of feel of how they, how they feel about it and what their interest level is in it. And they, for me personally, if someone was really against the idea, I have other things I can do. It's not the end of the world. If, if you don't want spinal manipulation, it's your choice. Uh, there are other interventions that are helpful that are, that are in my toolbox. The challenge is, and some of the bad stories come from patients who have that impression, who go to a chiropractor with one tool in the toolbox, and they're getting adjusted whether they kind of, not whether they want it or not, but that's the intervention that that person's going to provide without proper explanation of how this is going to feel, what you might hear. You know, some people are afraid of the noise and, you know, there's that, there's that to deal with too. So I think a lot of the misconceptions that patients have about that intervention could be cut off with a bit of discussion and education. And I think that's where a lot of people who use spinal manipulation kind of drop the ball. They're so eager to get to it. They don't spend enough time kind of explaining it and, you know, by and large, it doesn't hurt. It's not always comfortable, especially if you've never had it and it's the first time. You know, the most common adverse reaction is a bit of soreness after. And if you explain that, it's pretty common and it's benign and it goes away. And, and you know, it's a patient education opportunity that some people miss. So I think that, that would help and it would have sort of stopped a lot of those bad stories uh, that, that go out there. And, I've had numerous patients over the years come to me and they, oh, I saw a chiropractor once and I, I just lied down on the table and all of a sudden my neck was snapped one way or the other and, and there's no discussion there. So, you know, it's a healthcare intervention that if it's new to someone, it, it's worth a bit of time to talk to them about it. And often patients who came in to see me who weren't interested in having it done, once you treat them a couple of times and you start to talk about it a little bit more, they want to try it. And then most often, once you do it, they're, they always say, well, that's it. And they're, they're a little bit embarrassed that they were so worried about it. So it's a very controlled, precise procedure in, in the right hands. And uh, I just think people need to be educated a little bit more about it before, uh, before they have it done to them, I think. And another thing that you hear from patients or healthcare practitioners is that bones can slip out of place and that getting an adjustment realigns them. Yeah, that was the, the, the bone out of place misalignment model was what we were born from. And at the time, you, you can give them a pass on that in a way because there, we didn't have any research at all, really. And it's easy to see why someone thought that was the case. I feel stiffness in this spinal region. I push on it and I hear a cracking sound. So it was part of a way to cognitively justify maybe what was happening in that treatment model. And so lo and behold, there was a profession kind of, kind of built on it back then. But there's no real good evidence that bones in the spine move statically and stay there and then we come and push them back into place. So I think one of the, the reasons that spinal manipulation uh, as an intervention and perhaps chiropractic as a profession has struggled over the years with a widespread acceptance is that we're not still, to this day, really sure what's happening uh, when we use a spinal manipulation and hear the noise. So the bone out of place model uh, is not really supported by science. It's, I understand why people 
uh, originally thought that. I understand why people used it as a description to patients of what was happening. And if I'm honest, I think patients kind of understand it. I just think these days it's a little scientifically irresponsible to rely on that as the explanation. Granted, we don't have a final answer on any other explanation, but most of the work in that area now looks at neurophysiological effects. And, you know, personally, I think part of it is we're reducing stiffness in an area of the spine that's stiff and not moving very well. And that's typically how I explain it to patients. You're, you're inducing motion in a segment or segments that aren't moving very well. And I think patients understand that just as easily as they do bone at a place, pinching a nerve kind of thing. So we can, we've moved on from it, really, most of us. <laughs> and another thing you hear is that x-rays can show proof of a misalignment mm-hmm. and you can get before and after x-rays to show a difference. So this is a, a pet peeve of mine, over-reliance on imaging looking for spinal misalignments. Again, uh, you know, 50 years ago, with the technology and the research we had, it seemed like a good idea. These days, there are name techniques within our profession that focus almost solely on looking for misalignments that can be somehow changed with treatment. But really, to me, extraordinary claims require uh, extraordinary evidence. So for most, if not all of those techniques, there's not much evidence that First of all, the the assessment technique and the measurements they're doing are reliable. And most of them sort of ignore the fact that once you put a a measurement on an x-ray, there's a margin of error there. And often, the very subtle difference they're looking for is within the the margin of error that you're going to get just from trying to make the measurement in the first place. So that's a fatal flaw of that system. The second assumption is that let's say there is some sort of misalignment is that repetitive treatment or or some sort of treatment can actually change that. And in some individual patients, you'll see a change in their cervical lordosis, let's say, if you happen to be looking for it before and after. But a lot of chiropractors uh, rely on this as a way to get people to commit to a care plan and say, well, you have a, a, a misalignment in your neck, for example, or you have a lack of lordosis in your neck, which is going to lead to X, Y, and Z health outcome. So there, there are a lot of assumptions in that sort of line of, of thinking. And the least of which, you know, the, one of the main ones anyway, is that yes, if someone's cervical spine is a little straighter, will that have some health consequences after? And the, the answer is probably not uh, based on existing literature. Uh, Shilton's cohort paper in 2015 that we reviewed on the service took a cohort of people with a straighter cervical lordosis and manipulated them for a treatment course of a few months and didn't change any of the cervical lordosis measures. So that sort of idea is fraught with unreliable, uh, invalid measurement styles. And, and most of those techniques are also unfortunately flavored with a lot of hard sales salesmanship on the back end of it. So it falls to me within the body shaming thing with exposure to ionizing radiation. So. It's not really a standard practice in our profession. There are some that do it, but it's not taught that way, and that's not standard of care uh, for our profession at this point. It shouldn't be standard of care for anybody. You know, over-reliance on imaging for spinal pain syndromes is one of the biggest wastes of money in our healthcare system right now. So if you switch the the philosophical bend to that, and instead of looking for pathology, you're looking for alignment. I don't think you're part of the solution. You're part of the problem. Another... Thing that you hear is that chiropractors can treat anything, including diseases with spinal manipulation. Mm-hmm. Any diseases in particular? 
<laughs> where should we start? <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big controversial emotional topic for a lot of people. One of the courses that I do through my seminar branch of the company is called Spinal Health and Visceral Conditions. And, and really the title of it should be Spinal Health and Non-MSK Conditions. So we're talking about things like maybe blood pressure, digestion, uh, maybe colic in children, that sort of thing. And anyone who does manual therapy on patients, no matter what the discipline, will probably have stories from patients like, I came to you for back pain, but all of a sudden my digestion seems better, I'm not constipated as much anymore, something like that. We've all heard stories like that. So I'm not saying there's nothing there, but when you look at the corpus of literature as a whole, you, you have to look at it from a basic science perspective, like is there a feasible mechanism there by which spinal manipulation could influence immunity, for example. So that, those basic science questions are extremely difficult to study. If, if we just back up to the task of studying it, for example. So how does putting my hands on someone's spine, whether you thrust or mobilize or whatever it is, how does that boil down to an autonomic nervous system response at a glandular uh, level or at an organ system level? So it's incredibly hard to study. And there are only a few people in the world that, that can do it well. So for a lot of those sort of non-MSK conditions, the basic science literature isn't fully complete yet. So then we try and do clinical studies on things without the mechanism work being done yet. And lo and behold, it's kind of a mixed bag of results. So I think, and as I said earlier, our, our role in the healthcare system or our strength at the moment is being a, a viable, uh, evidence-based, affordable, effective treatment for spinal pain syndromes. If our patients experience other health benefits because of that, great. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I think it happens quite often. We just don't have the evidence base to rely on that from a marketing perspective or anything. And, and those that, that sort of live in that area and do rely on that for their marketing, I think are, aren't helping us really. So let the evidence catch up and be willing to accept that answer before we use that as a marketing angle or, or as a promotion. And, and, uh, and again, back to if you go to 10 people on the street and say, what does a chiropractor do? None of them are going to say asthma or colic or digestive problems or blood pressure. So I think our profession needs to listen to that and, and provide a service that people are looking for. So that world is, it gets us in trouble sometimes. The science isn't really there one way or the other. And, and, I, and I should clarify that, you know, absence of evidence isn't ev evidence of absence, right? I just think we don't have the answer yet. So let's not say that we do. I think that's the, the main take home there. Are there any other myths that you'd like to talk about? Um, in the course that I do, and, and you guys already talked to Greg, and he covered some of it uh, and does it well, and it kind of it goes back to what I said earlier about body shaming people on, on kind of normal, clinically irrelevant asymmetries. And, you know, the postural structural biomechanical model is not perfect, and, and it sort of built a number of professions, including my own, but over time it, it's sort of shown us not to be a terribly reliable thing uh, in terms of clinical assessment. Or, or treatment, or can we change those things anyway? And as, as I also said, the, over my career, it kind of morphed into thinking about myths that were taught to us, uh, such as being able to palpate reliably movement of the sacrum. It's just not really possible, and there's not a ton of movement there anyway. But some people are still really convinced that that's a thing. And I think what research has to 
address sometimes is is not necessarily fact or fiction it's overcoming human bias in the way they learn things and in the way they approach things clinically and if you're a chiropractor or a physiotherapist that, that you were educated in the 60s 70s or, or 80s you learned a whole lot of different stuff than what current uh, students and recent grads are learning so i think part of it is a, a commitment to staying current in your, in your knowledge which is a challenge for a lot of people and part of it is you know, addressing your own spectrum bias or your own little echo chamber in your practice if you practice by yourself and you see certain results and think that there's a bigger picture there, but maybe there isn't. And, you know, every practitioner of any discipline is really good at remembering their successes and really great at forgetting their failures, right? So, you know, if you ask most chiropractors or physiotherapists, what's your success rate in practice? Oh, it's 85% at least or 90. I get everyone better. And then I always ask them, have you had anyone recently that came to see you for one or two visits and then never came back again? And everyone pauses for a second, realizing that maybe that person, you didn't help them. And at the end of the day, I think one of the myths in, in our world of manual medicine is that one practitioner is going to be able to help everybody or that there's one magic technique that's good for everybody. And I think the more we study it, the more we realize there are contextual effects to treatment. There, there's clinical benefit for someone booking an appointment with you and coming into your nice office and you being nice to them and you touching them regardless of what the intervention is. So I think as we figure out all those factors, we'll realize that the exact techniques aren't always as important as being a good person, listening, trying to help them and doing something good for them and, and supporting it with, you know, good hands-on care and some exercise. It's really, I, th I think, People complicate clinical practice sometimes with, you know, being obsessed with this technique or that technique. And I, I really don't think it matters all the time, unfortunately. <laughs> Some would disagree with me there. <laughs> you spoke a little bit about the schooling process and how it's different today than it was earlier on. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they do a good job with staying up to date with the evidence? In terms of the educational mm -hmm. programs? Well, I can only speak to, to CMCC because I'm on faculty there, and, and I'll qualify this by saying I'm a very part-time faculty member. Uh, I think I lecture uh, 12 hours a year, so I'm not there all the time. I'm not involved in curriculum development and that side of things. Um, but there are certainly some things that have been adapted well over the years and added to the curriculum, and, and, a, and a good example I can think of is pain neuroscience, for example. And that's a big world these days that affects physio, it affects chiro, it affects massage therapists, it affects family doctors. This whole idea of a centrally sensitized patient and how we can deal with it. Um, so that's a, an example of a good addition to the, to the curriculum. And when I was there from 2000 to 2004, we didn't really touch on it, mostly because we didn't really know about it. So efforts are there, but I, I think one of the challenges is in, a, in an academic curriculum-based environment, it's sort of like clinical practice. I think as research emerges, it takes time for it to filter down to the educational level, but also to the clinical practitioner level. And you hear various numbers on that, like 10, 15 years, which is terrifying in a, in a way. But once you circle back to personal biases and educational backgrounds and when did you go to school, you kind of realize that habits are hard to change sometimes as our thought processes and you know clinical uh, routines and that sort of thing. So. I think that the good efforts are, are being made to do that. And I think the same could be said in the physiotherapy world as well. I'm sure physiotherapy education that, that you received is far different than what someone received in the 80s. And I think that's entirely fair. 
I think uh, new graduates come out with a lot of knowledge, but I'm a firm believer that real learning happens when you're in practice or when you see patients. So I think some people take that and run with it and adapt and evolve and integrate new things and patch in the evidence where, where they can. And I think others kind of come out with a certain way of doing things and a certain mindset, and they never vary from that. So they're, you know, I think one's better than the other. <laughs> uh, but, the, you know, the problem is adapting and constantly learning and integrating is the harder way to do it. So I think that's the challenge for new grads these days, too. Do you have any tips on staying current with the research? Well, I'm incredibly biased uh, in that question because I have a vehicle that, that attempts to do that. So the body of literature that comes out in manual medicine that is relevant to us is massive. So, you know, there's a paper years ago looking at cardiology uh, uh, or neurology, I forget which one, but it was just looking at the volume of literature coming out in that particular medical specialty. And I forget the exact number, but it said if you were a cardiologist, let's just say that that's what it was, and you wanted to read every paper pertinent to your specialty at that time, you'd have to read something like 10 to 15,000 papers a year. So no one's going to do that. I get that. But if you, if you come around to the manual medicine world, we have to pay attention to kind of general health, public health issues and epidemiology things. We have to pay attention to biomechanical literature. We have to pay attention to sports injury stuff, modalities, rehab and exercise, acupuncture if that's your thing, and also the manual therapy stuff. So we have a lot of different areas to, to keep in touch with. And one of the challenges in my business and with the service, we post one research review a week. And we try and vary the topics. Like, you know, we cover a clinical practice guideline on neck pain, for example. And last week we post a, posted a medical hypothesis paper about frozen shoulder adhesive capsulitis. So we like to vary our topics that way and our customers appreciate that. And at one point a few years ago, I went to posting a couple of reviews per week, sometimes, not all the time. And the feedback I got was, that's too much. So people like digestible bits of, of information on the go. And I would argue that our research reviews are a little more comprehensive than that. There are lots of ways you can get lots of abstracts thrown at you every day. You can, you can do email table of contents from journals, or there are lots of Facebook groups that post papers you know, 10, 15, 20 times a day. But I think we can do a bit better than that in terms of, you know, reading an abstract is interesting, but the abstract isn't always the whole story. And abstracts lack context of how does this paper fit into the, the body of literature that we have on a given topic. So uh, I think that being a, a clinician in a busy practice and adding the responsibility of staying current on emerging literature is a challenge. And I saw an opportunity to fill that void. And perhaps my greatest success to date is that I monetized an information service in a world where information is free for the most part. You know, I, I, I believe most free information is worth what you paid for it, but that's changing to some degree. But I think our, our system allows a little more, you know, learning to happen and a little more context to be put into a given paper and, and help people understand where it fits in. And one of the key, po uh, you know, components of our research reviews is application to clinical practice. And I think that's often what's lost in research too. And I chose the, the kind of news reporter angle of things. I was considering a master's PhD, but what I, what I realized was I'm not terribly interested in one particular thing. I consider myself a generalist. I mean, in my seminars, and I've, I've spoken at conferences about neck pain, back pain, concussions, headaches, sports injuries. I can 
you know, if you give me enough time, I can put together a very well thought out evidence-based discussion on just about anything. And a lot of researchers who are producing this work, it really, they pigeonhole themselves in a way, but that's the nature of the beast when you do a, a PhD is you become a very specific content expert, you know, but research doesn't matter at all, frankly, if no one reads it and integrates it into the bigger picture of clinical practice. And I think there's a real need for that. In the last few years, you've seen knowledge transfer graduate programs pop up. So people can do graduate work in getting information from published data down to the, the, you know, the daily uh, practicing clinician. So if my service helps with that, then great. <laughs> and, and you know, I think it's a shame if, if you don't integrate current evidence into practice because these days it's really aligning nicely with what chiros and physios are, bring to the table. And so I think you know, being an evidence-based practitioner these days is not scary at all. It's actually quite positive if we just integrate it and, and do it. So those are the, uh, the issues in, at hand there. And I wanna to touch on the business side of the chiropractic mm. profession. Um, sometimes you hear stories about aggressive marketing tactics that mm -hmm. chiropractors use and including the long paid treatment plans, yeah. uh, things like that. What are your thoughts? Um, uh, initial thought, it, it, I'm not a fan of that sort of approach. And we have to qualify that for a moment because for all of the negative sort of connotations and stories that arise from those business practices, that's a decently small percentage of our profession that practice that way. And that could be a myth about chiropractic in general, and it, and it boils down to individual practitioner differences. But when, when we survey uh, our profession, it's under, you know, 20, 15%-ish of our profession that, that sort of adhere to practices like that. And I don't think it's a, it's, it's a very doctor-centered way to practice and not a patient-centered way. It's certainly possible that patients under care and that sort of model get better and feel good, and I'm not saying that's that that's a bad uh, that's a bad thing, but I think the the kind of business approach that's tacked onto it is a bit concerning, and I don't think helps our, our our reputation in the in the greater society at large, and doesn't contribute to our improving our cultural authority, and it creates a lot of kind of bad, ill will towards our profession and those individuals that choose to do that. So I think based on you know current evidence and and what people come to see us for, there's no real need to do that anymore. If you provide cost effective and logical uh, episodic care for uh, spinal pain syndromes, if we want to use that example, everyone's going to be busy. Uh, so there's no need for any of that. And as I said earlier, the, the data on long-term treatment and the, the health outcomes one way or the other, we just don't have that answer now. So, um, and I suspect a study like that is, isn't entirely forthcoming at the moment. We may see some indication of that when we, if we're able to, or when we gather bigger data on treatment patterns for individual people and maybe be able to monitor outcomes over time, but we don't have an evidence base for that. And, um, you know, there, there are charlatans in every profession, right? There are bad lawyers, bad accountants, bad chiropractors, bad everything. So the, the trick for a patient is to find one that you can trust via referral or, or some other method that'll get you to a good person. And then off you go. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss today? You tell me. <laughs> okay, the last question then, where can people find out more about you? Well, I, I make myself uh, purposefully easy to find. Uh, if you want information or, or are interested in subscribing to 
our research reviews on RRS Education, visit rrseducation.com. You can set up an account there through which you can subscribe to the, the research reviews or, or complete and manage your online courses or register for seminars. And eventually the webinar interface will work through there as well. I have my cell phone numbers on the website. Uh, my email is all over the place, so you can reach me at sean at rrseducation.com. Yeah, I'm not a hard guy to find. Uh, I'm on social media. I'm not awesome at it, uh, but that's I, that might be the first thing I hire someone to do uh, for me because I don't think I'm tremendously good at it. But if you contact me through social media, I will get back to you, but I tend to, to answer emails faster. Um, so, yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.